Welcome to this week's episode of Mixed Methods. Like many of us, Marie Huber's path to human-centered research has been a winding one. But unlike most of us, her path has taken her through Afghanistan and Iraq, through the Norwegian Refugee Council and UN Women's Organization. And now to San Francisco, where she's working at a social impact consultancy as a human-centered researcher. Marie recently wrote an article about how she is bringing all of this incredible experience working in crisis situations to bear, now working during the coronavirus crisis. I found the article enlightening, and I wanted to spend some more time with Marie, diving deeper into how to work at this time, and maybe more importantly, how to care for our participants, our coworkers, and ourselves. This is Ariel Sionflon, and you're listening to Mixed Methods. Today's episode, Crisis Mode. Today's episode is brought to you by DScout, a platform that makes qualitative research fun again. From recruitment, project design, to interviews, you'll get that feeling that got you interested in user-centered work in the first place. Capture remote insights that spark your next big aha moment. Check out dscout.com mm to get started. And by UXRConf Anywhere, the world's largest UX research conference now 100% online. Grab a ticket to hear from some of the world's top researchers and participate in unique networking opportunities. If you're a student, someone who's been laid off recently, or just don't have work footing the bill, you can now get a ticket for just 99 bucks. I'm so excited to have Marie Huber on the show today. Uh, Marie, I thought we could start by just having you do a quick introduction. Yes, I am currently working as a senior researcher at a consulting company that specializes in social impact strategy, but my background is mostly in humanitarian response and international development. So I studied political science and visual arts, and then I got my master's in international peace studies. And then from there, I moved to Afghanistan and took a job as a researcher for a national nonprofit organization. Ended up co-founding a consulting firm there, doing different kinds of generative and evaluative research for nonprofits and international organizations. And then I sort of weaved my way around various international experiences. I worked in Baghdad and refugee response, did global advising for another nonprofit, and then sort of worked my way back to San Francisco and found myself in the role that I'm in now. So now I'm doing a lot of research on strategic and business planning and evaluation work for actors in the social impact space. A lot of nonprofits, local government, funders, social entrepreneurs, corporate giving, that type of work. Amazing. Yeah, I feel like you're one of the only, you know, individuals who's really active in UX research who also has spent, you know, so much time doing work in Afghanistan. Definitely. (laughs) It's a niche background, that's for sure. (laughs) Yeah. So maybe you could tell me a little bit about, you know, how your background, which is largely in humanitarian response and international development, how did human-centered design become part of your story? Yeah. So, I mean, I definitely think of myself primarily as a social behavioral researcher. And I think my perspective on the role of research is always really aligned to human-centered design at a, at a pretty fundamental level. I've always been pretty interested in building a skill set as a researcher where I can really create space and ask questions that 
allow people to kind of communicate their own truth pretty directly and sort of viewing research as the vehicle to bring that to stakeholders who need that for decision making and and bringing people into the room and giving them voice that aren't necessarily there. So I think, you know, human-centered design was kind of just a natural frame for that approach to research that I've always kind of tried to apply throughout my work. Yeah, I love that you have you know, that perspective, because I think your background, a lot of people don't end up kind of coming to that same place. I'm curious how you developed the skill set to do human-centered research when you were coming from a place that was much more kind of public service oriented. Yeah, that's a great question. I mean, I think partially the context where I was doing research just really necessitated a more human-centered approach, especially in Afghanistan, which was where I really started doing a lot of primary research projects. You have so many like just contextual constraints that, you know, people like connectivity is limited and you're not able to do things, you know, over the phone or email out a survey. There's literacy and, and language constraints. So a lot of it was really out in the field and doing a lot of interactive participatory research. And I think the methodologies and the, the approaches to data collection in that space really overlap a lot with a human-centered process and how you bring those into like design and actual decision making. So I think that 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 background probably played a big part in that. Yeah, it's so interesting to hear that it was essentially like the constraints that you had in your work environment that like naturally forced you to kind of take a more human-centered perspective and like really get to know your participants and, you know, share a space with them and Yeah, absolutely. I guess I'm curious too, you know, like you work in these organizations that probably haven't interacted as much with, you know, UX researchers or design researchers and I'm curious how you've seen the individuals at these organizations react to this type of work in this perspective? It's a great question because I think there's a perception within the sector of social impact and like as an outsider looking in that like because it's social impact, it is human centered. And I think that can actually be like from what I've experienced, a barrier that you have to overcome and really incorporating these types of approaches, especially because when you're doing nonprofit work, there's a really indirect accountability relationship with users. You're usually accountable to funders and users have such limited agency and are usually coming from a place of limited power and vulnerability. So like the the ability to opt in or opt out of what you're providing isn't really there in a lot of cases. There's mm-hmm. not really this like counterfactual for what good design versus better design looks like. So I think like that there is like an openness to that perspective, but it's overcoming that confusion of like good intentions and altruism with with human centered processes and finding the right language to sort of make that case that like they're not already doing that if there's not if there's not users directly involved in some way or another, and then sort of demonstrating the vehicle that research can be to do that. Yeah, I think that makes so much sense, especially the part where, you know, people might naturally think that because it's social impact, you know, obviously like individuals who are getting into that space care so much about the people that they're trying to serve and uplift in some way. But at the same time, like that doesn't necessarily mean that they like have the skill set or the the know-how to realize, you know, like, hey, in order to to figure out if this is really working for people, we need to like go and see and talk to them. Yeah. So it's really, it's interesting. I'm curious, like, have there been any like specific, you know, examples of times that you found it really challenging or that you found it really rewarding to kind of come at a problem with this perspective or, you know, the way that your stakeholders responded in a certain case? 
Yeah. I guess like just thinking back to a lot of the work that I was doing in Afghanistan, I mean, there were some really powerful research projects there. I worked a lot in like gender-based violence and, you know, gender equality is like a huge thing on the, the development agenda for nonprofits working in that context. And there's a lot of assumptions around, you know, women's experience. And I did some really, really interesting projects with like life story interviews and like very in-depth sort of storytelling methods that mm-hmm. I think it was really interesting to see, you know, the power that that there can be to like giving voice and agency to people who typically aren't in the room having those conversations and how that can really impact decision makers ideas about what they actually need and solutions for the problems that they're having. So when you say like they aren't usually in the room, you're referring to these women who like typically are not able to, you know, have a conversation directly with the individuals who are trying to help them. Yeah. Or even, you know, who's in in positions in these nonprofit organizations or you have national staff and it doesn't tend to be like the most excluded and the most marginalized and the most vulnerable that are even at that level. So just taking it down to to understanding the experiences as they're happening for the people that are experiencing them instead of sort of this telephone game through cultural contexts that are really foreign to to us as outsiders. How did you even find those those women and those individuals and like make those connections. The example that I was thinking of was specifically evaluating a peer counseling support program that a client had developed. So we were talking directly with women who had, you know, participated in those services. It was myself and a field manager who was obviously fluent in Dari and and Pashto and could have those conversations, having these one-on-one interviews with women that had participated in those services. Yeah, out in the community, just meeting people where they're at and locations that were safe and comfortable. The dynamics of that were really, really interesting. Mm -hmm. It's just so cool to hear about human-centered design, you know, having an impact in such different contexts. Because I think the reality is usually when we're talking about it, we're talking about it in some kind of tech context or, Mm -hmm. um, you know, like technology company. And so, yeah, it's really cool to hear about you being in this very, very different context in this very, very different culture and still finding it so valuable to take that lens. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think there are some people in the humanitarian and international development space familiar with this framework, but I would love to see so much more of it just explicitly brought into that world because I think it's so valuable. Even when you are in field, you can't be with your participants 24-7. But there's one thing that can be. They're smartphones. Gscout is a remote research platform leveraging just that, which saves you from missing the moments that matter. Set up a diary study and see your participants' daily lives in context. Use Gscout Live and conduct interviews on a platform actually built for research. Bring your own participants on board or handpick from their 100,000-person scout pool. To start connecting with more people more impactfully, head to dscout.com mm. So, Marie, I originally, you know, was interested in having this conversation because you wrote this really thoughtful piece on Medium about 
researching in a crisis and, you know, reading about your background and understanding all of the wonderful work that you'd already done up to this point, I think just made me even more interested when I was reading this article about doing research in a crisis. And I was curious to learn, you know, or to hear more about how you learned about that specific subject, whether it was in Afghanistan or or somewhere else, how you, you know, learned about how you actually go ahead and do this type of work when you are in the midst of a crisis. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, so much of humanitarian response is just sitting permanently in the crisis space. So in a lot of the the jobs that I've had, I was working with just really incredibly talented and knowledgeable experts in disaster cycle management and emergency response. So a lot of it was learning and just interacting with and supporting them and designing and, and rolling out programs and the work that they do. And then also like really a lot of it is just learning by doing, having to design and manage and implement research in complex crisis contexts like Afghanistan and Iraq. As you know, you can imagine, there's violent conflict going on, there's instability, there's you know systems level challenges with the political context. And then it's also Afghanistan, especially is very natural disaster prone. So that's often compounded by avalanches or mudslides or, or health crises. So learning to do research in that context was a lot of learning what it means to do research in crisis Mm -hmm. in real time, adapting your fieldwork, where your team is at, and also really learning what it means to be doing research with participants who are in crisis and often, you know, survival really being front of mind and how that affects the types of questions you can ask and how you talk to people and the type of information they share with you and how much time that takes and really just sort of learning through that process, what the different considerations are. Mm -hmm. I know when you say that, it's like so difficult for me to even think about, you know, when someone is dealing with a mudslide and like violence around them and, you know, wondering if they're going to survive or if their family is going to survive, which like sadly is somewhat similar to like our current context with the pandemic that we're in. I just, Mm -hmm. I wonder how you like how you go about deciding what research is worth doing in that moment and then how you actually go about doing it. Like how you, you know, sit down with someone who's in that brain space and like, you know, establish that connection and yeah, have that conversation. The thing that's really interesting about the pandemic and experiencing this in this context, I mean, despite having had these experiences, it really threw me for a loop because these are things that I was expecting to experience when I signed up to work in Afghanistan. And when I went to work in Iraq, they're not things I was expecting to experience here. And I think we're all experiencing that at some level. And I mean, the thing about doing this kind of research in Afghanistan and Iraq is it's really normalized. Afghanistan has been experiencing some form of this for like 50 years. So it's a routine part of people's day-to-day lives. And it's it's not as like exceptional of an experience, unfortunately. Mm-hmm. So I think carrying that over as to how you approach that, it's a little bit different in this context because people are so caught off guard. There's like a slightly different dynamic to it. But I think in terms of deciding what research to do, there is this like new ethical lens to how valuable people's time is right now. And because people are so like we are as a society, even here, much closer to that survival mode, like real things are happening for a lot of people losing jobs, the health risks that people are facing um, that have like very basic needs implications. So I think it's about, you know, really thinking about your research in terms of the crisis context and and where we're at in this like disaster cycle and the aftershocks that are coming from it right now and 
is this the time to do that research? Is it is it necessary right now? Can it wait? Is there a space for this research to actually help you address a problem that someone's having right now? Is that something you're interested in doing? I think there's just a different set of questions that you really need to ask yourself and sort of elevate that responsibility beyond your immediate research questions to really just thinking about the context and what's really happening for people. Yeah. And maybe you could talk a little bit to, you know, you mentioned the disaster management cycle. Yeah. Could you tell us a little bit about it? I mean, I just, when I read your article, it was the first time that I had ever heard about a disaster management cycle. So I thought it was a helpful framework. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it's used really commonly when talking about natural disasters, but I think just having that that frame is also super helpful right now and and for health crises also. So, I mean, thinking about disasters as any kind of event that really disrupts how a community or a society or even like a household is functioning and has some sort of impacts like human, material, economic, environmental, um, in a way that either stresses or exceeds the resources that people have to cope. There's usually like this initial disaster event, like a natural disaster or like this pandemic. And then there's all these aftershocks too, which are kind of like mini crises or mini disaster events that happen as this sort of ripple effect goes out over time. So within that, there's this whole way of thinking about the disaster cycle as what's pre-event and what's post-event. So the pre-event phases are mitigation and preparedness. So thinking about risks or or events that are likely to happen, um, like right now, we can think about the aftershocks from COVID as, you know, the continued health risks. And then there's also, you know, the economic risks that we know are on the horizon. And then at the personal level, there's a lot of other things as well. But it's really mitigation is about thinking about the actions we can take right now to either reduce the likelihood that those things happen or to minimize the impact that they would have if they occurred. And then preparedness is about having a plan in place for what we would do, the actions that we would take if that event actually happened, and then getting all your ducks in a row to be able to do that in real time so we're not sort of playing catch up when the event happens. And then the post-disaster phases are response and recovery. So response is once that disaster event hits, responding to the immediate needs and the immediate disruptions and the impacts of those disruptions in real time as things are still sort of unfolding and in the immediate aftermath. And then recovery is the phase when things have really started to stabilize. And it's about what what do we want to do to get back to some sort of state of, you know, quote unquote, normality. And that's either returning to the way things were or ideally building back better and using this as sort of an opportunity, you know, to create a new normal that doesn't have the same issues that might have been in place before. So aligning that whole framework to where we're at right now with COVID-19, at the macro level, we're really in that response phase. The event happened. We weren't prepared. A lot of us didn't see this coming. We didn't have plans. And that's kind of at every level. It's, you know, personally, it's sort of socially and in our communities and then also in like companies and products and services and and everything else. But there are all these little aftershocks that are still coming that we can we can now foresee and have a lot of a lot of credible information to know that they're pretty likely to happen. And we're still sort of in that pre-disaster phase for those. So there's still this opportunity to mitigate and prepare for these little aftershocks and try to sort of insulate from further, further risk and further damage. So I think when we're thinking about 
user experience research and and all that goes along with that and human-centered design, all these phases create or, or sort of stress existing problems and create new problems in ways that can be really erratic. So having a crisis-aware research process really helps to be responsive to what's already happened, but also to create this opportunity to be more proactive and forward-thinking about how you can align research and and sort of crisis-aware design to what's also still to come. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, I love that that phrase of like crisis-aware research. I'm, you know, I'm curious if there's anything more that you want to say about that. Like how, you know, what does that mean exactly? Yeah, I mean, this is something I've kind of been trying to find the right words for this as I've been discussing these things in my work and like writing the Medium article and figuring out you know, what language, how it translates from a humanitarian context to something that kind of resonates in this context. And I think like, I think I've kind of landed on crisis aware. I I think I'd initially said crisis responsive. And I think that that gets too stuck in that reactive mode. It's not just about response. It's about thinking about the dynamics of a whole crisis life cycle and also like creating opportunities to be proactive about it. So I think like for me, crisis aware research is there's a lot of different lenses, um, but one of them is just being aware of that cycle and how disasters play out and what's needed at different stages and having that frame to kind of slot your thinking about what you're doing into. And then I think there's this other really important lens of crisis over research, which is around just like familiarizing yourself and understanding the sort of behavioral psychology of what happens for people in crisis. Like our brains are literally like we're programmed to survive and there are parts of our brain that function kind of solely in that survival space. And when we feel threatened or when we perceive that we are unsafe, which, you know, on some degree, I think we all do right now, that your brain is literally functioning differently. You're not making decisions the same way. You're not behaving the same way. Your values and priorities really realign. So I think that that's a hugely important part of crisis-aware research is really thinking about that and how does that affect you know, the contextual validity of the information we already have and, and the information that we're going to be able to get right now. Yeah, it's so interesting to think about that. I mean, I'm sure that there are researchers listening to this who are already, you know, pretty familiar with that just because of, you know, the fact that they work with certain populations that like, unfortunately, you know, kind of, you know, live in that, that state of mind more often than not. But I'm curious for you and your experience, you know, working with these individuals who are in crisis, like how has being aware of, you know, what you just mentioned about how it even just changes the way like your brain is actually functioning how has being aware of that changed the way that you interact with these individuals i think that there are a lot of implications just on like the research and interviewing process particularly certain aspects of consent that become a lot more relevant i mean consent is always really important and like the the criteria for when consent can be said to be informed is always important but I mean, thinking about where we're at right now, even if you're doing an interview that's not about COVID or directly about that, just understanding that this is front of mind for people and they're probably, it's more likely to come up even if you're not asking about it. It means that talking about the psychological risks of participating in an interview becomes more important. Mm -hmm. Making sure that you're sort of aware of how to monitor for when people are 
are becoming distressed or a conversation is escalating into an area of discomfort for someone and that you are sort of prepared with the tools and, and what you need to do as the person facilitating that conversation to, to give space and pause or stop the interview. It's, I guess, a lot of sort of like trauma-informed care principles and how that translates into an interview, even if you're not necessarily doing an interview about trauma, just understanding that that needs to be factored in. And then I think also understanding how how this is going to impact what you can ask about and what kind of information you're going to get. Yeah. And needing to sort of map out the the distinction between sort of, you know, normal decision-making processes and behaviors and and what you're going to be asking about now. Like, you know, asking about someone's daily routine is going to be extremely different. Um, and the things that they're going to want to talk to you about when they're when they're saying something like that are going to be really different. It might be a lot more personal. Mm-hmm. And so just really like thinking through and familiarizing yourself with like the behavioral psychology elements of crisis start to really, I think for me, like set off a lot of light bulbs on how it needs to change like my process and my protocol, my consent procedure and the ordering and phrasing of questions and and just like which methods might be more or less appropriate. There's a lot there that can, I think, be dug into on a pretty, like a pretty scrappy way, but a pretty important way. This episode is brought to you by UXR Conf Anywhere, happening June 25th and 26th. The conference features an amazing lineup of leading UX researchers who will be discussing topics like how to combat natural memory limitations, run insight sprints, and more. This is the third year of the conference, and as someone who attended the first, it really is one of the best conferences out there. So use the promo code MIXMETHODS, all one word, to get 10% off, or if you're a student, laid off worker, or just don't have work footing the bill, you can now get a ticket for $99. Yeah, so, I mean, I guess building off of that, then, you know, what would you say? It's not obviously like consent is a huge issue that you just brought up, but I'm curious, like, you know, when you're thinking about the ground rules for researchers, um, you know, in a time of crisis for them to, to keep front of mind, what would you say? Or, you know, you also just brought up methods. I would love to hear, you know, kind of some of your thoughts of ground rules and then what's most appropriate in, in a time like this. I feel like I could go on a while. for. <laughs> Please do. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I think the first one is definitely what I was just mentioning is just like, that our brains are functioning differently. Like that in itself is a ground rule. And like yours probably is too, as the researcher, like we're affected by this too. And then there's like a really collective dimension to this that we're not really used to in terms of how we tend to experience crisis. So like there's that that lens of just that awareness and familiarizing yourself with like, what does that really mean for the way that I'm going to relate to this person and the way that I'm going to show up in this interview and the way they're going to show up mm-hmm. in this research as well. I think there's like just the understanding that crises are very dynamic and inherently that means that the shelf life of information is just way, way, way shorter. And I think that something that I've seen, you know, when we're feeling like we're in stuck in uncertainty and an area that's unknown and unfamiliar, it's really tempting to like search for things that feel comforting and familiar and known. And for a lot of people that can be existing like research repositories or studies that have been done and looking for something relevant. And I think it's important to 
maybe not necessarily resist, but at least check that temptation, like pulling anything out of research that was done in a context other than the one we're living in right now. Like there's going to need to be some kind of like work there to validate that that's still relevant and that's still reflective of something that's useful and that should be informing decisions in this current moment. Mm -hmm. And I I think like going back to that crisis being a collective experience, it also makes it a lot more instinctive to project our personal experiences onto others and assume because we're both experiencing this crisis that how we are experiencing it is is going to be applicable to somebody else also. And I mean, even in times of crisis, like we are not our users. So just also keeping that sort of front of mind and, and resisting that that pull as well. I think also, yeah, with the shelf life of information, I think I have seen as well that this kind of creates an additional problem of getting stuck in this like paralysis that it's not worthwhile to be doing research if if what we're learning isn't going to be valid in a week or two or in a month. But the thing is, like, it, it probably won't. But what you learn this week might help you make a better decision this week. And that's really like that's the space we're in. That's the space that crises create. And so it's just really important to get comfortable there and think about what is a lighter lift, rapid, dynamic research process look like? And how do we create that aligned to how complex and dynamic the crisis is and sort of scale that down as things stabilize? And then I think there's a really important lens on like equity and inclusion, just to name that even though crises affect everyone, they're not equalizers. They tend to exacerbate inequalities and vulnerability and problems that existed before the crisis hit. So just needing to think about that, especially in like who you're talking to and what you're thinking about as your user base and how you're you're segmenting that and who you're thinking of as user groups. Yeah, that the problems are really going to be different. And that this, I guess that the research also needs to really align to the problem space. Getting stuck in that reaction mode is really focused on the solution space, but crises fundamentally impact like just really basic problems that people have and how they're being experienced and needing to ensure that you're taking that step back to, to incorporate that into the research that you're doing. Mm-hmm. Okay. I feel like you just brought up so many really, <laughs> really important things. Yeah, yeah. I'm sure I also like missed there. There are a few ground rules, I guess you could say. <laughs> yeah. Well, and I mean, I just so appreciate, you know, like the clearly super thoughtful approach that you've developed you know, from all of your experiences working in these really, really different and uh, difficult contexts. I think that, you know, what you brought up in terms of, you know, you are not your user is so important because it feels like that idea is kind of where like the entire field of UX research or design research kind of came from. But then layering on like a situation like the one we're in, you know, it's true that even as researchers, we can feel like oh, I know what it's like to experience this pandemic. And the reality is like, we're all having such different experiences with it. As you mentioned, you know, when you said that crisis is, they might equalize us in some ways, but they also exacerbate vulnerabilities and um, inequalities that exist in our society. So I, yeah, I just so appreciate you bringing that up. Yeah. I mean, I think that there's another point that feels very of the moment on that, which is also that the whole chain of people and individuals and processes involved in delivering on a product or service or experience are are so important too. And they're important just from like 
doing the right thing perspective, but also they're really important to users right now, thinking about like delivery services or, you know, people who are out there and the sort of inequalities and vulnerabilities that come with that. And so I think it's really important to be expanding the scope of what user research means to not just be the end users, but also all the different user groups sort of along that entire entire process of delivering on a service or experience is like a very important lens to be to be bringing in right now. Marie, I would love to have you dive a little deeper as well into what you mentioned about rapid research cuz you know, I think what you've said about like the shelf life of information is way way shorter is so true. And so what does that mean like how do we respond? How does our approach change? Yeah, I think a lot of this isn't really about doing it's not about like new research tools or a substance substantively different like steps to the process. It's really this mindset shift and like creating this crisis aware mindset for research right now. And I think that that can actually be kind of simple in practice. And I sort of talked about this in the article or tried to offer some practical suggestions on what this might look like aligned to my experiences and how you, what the steps you take once a a disaster hits from emergency response. But I think the first thing is really like stopping to take stock of I mean, I guess what in emergency response is called a rapid needs assessment. And I would translate to this context as stepping back to really focus on updating that problem space research. Does the way that you think about your user groups hold up? Is that still valid? Is that still the best way of of sort of segmenting people according to the problems they're experiencing or whatever sort of factors are front of mind for you in doing that? And then really understanding what has changed for them in that fundamental problem space. Mm -hmm. What's that crisis baseline and how does that compare to what the situation was before? And that should also start to illuminate some areas of the solution space that may also have shifted or become more or less relevant in this moment too. And then I think it's just about creating whatever sort of works for you in terms of the resources you have and access to users and the appropriateness of how you can implement this given given how impacted they are by what's currently happening. But being able to just sort of continuously update that in real time aligned to how dynamic the crisis is. So maybe like a month ago, you know, in San Francisco, when we were going into shelter in place, that might have been like every week. Just think about how much your daily routines were shifting and how much you were really adjusting and figuring out, you know, how to how to respond and adjust in your own life. But now, you know, we're starting, sort of starting to settle into this and understand this as like a at least medium term sense of normal. And maybe that that means every couple of weeks, but things are still changing really quickly. So needing to have some sort of process for understanding how the problem space is shifting instead of just, you know, reacting with solutions that you think might be helpful for people or might maintain the relevance of the product or service you're providing. And I think it's about just keeping that research lift extremely light, like as light as possible. That might just mean, you know, talking to a handful of people and just doing like a gut check on the information you had from last week or a few weeks ago, but just really like being able to use your intuition and your skill set as a researcher to kind of know when you've hit saturation and be able to decide in real time instead of, you know, planning this entire research project and we're going to talk to X number of people and then, you know, the next couple of weeks are implementing that and then the next couple of weeks are analysis of just making that a lot more dynamic in real time of, you know, we're going to talk to people from this user group and we're going to talk to as many as we, we think we need to talk to until we feel really confident that we have enough information, that we have good enough information to get a sense of what's happening. Mm-hmm. And then also like obviously the important piece of stakeholder buy-in in that is that 
like the people who need to use that research need to be on board with that process too. Mm-hmm. Um, and needing to establish some sort of process that works there for sharing that information out in real time and sort of supporting them as well to shift into the the headspace that that might also mean that the solutions are needing to change on a really rapid rapid pace also and those changes might be temporary they might be longer lasting but like crisis aware research informing a crisis aware design process is obviously the the objective of of putting that in place mm-hmm. it's so interesting to think about it's just so interesting to think about how this crisis has changed you know our lives but also the way we do research because when you were talking about moving a lot more quickly and just kind of taking like a, a more agile approach you know mm-hmm. I was thinking in my head okay but what about recruiting and then the next thought was <laughs> well actually you know like a lot of people are waiting a lot or just like have a lot more free time because of you know unfortunately like what's happened with employment or you know, being at home. And then there's other people who are busier than they've ever been because they're now, you know, not only like doing their normal job, but they're also caring for their three children or whatever it is. So it obviously is so important to to keep that context in mind. And I think not just assume that things are the way they were before that recruiting is going to be harder or easier, you know, but really just kind of seeing what it is. Yeah. Or or even just different. Like there might be things that weren't a part of your recruitment factors that need to be now. Like maybe a person's occupation wasn't something that was like a top criteria, but you kind of might want to know that now. If someone's a healthcare worker or if someone is, you know, in an essential industry. And so it's just like think like I think any sort of routine process or procedure that was a part of your research process like recruitment just before doing business as usual, just like pausing to take a minute to say like which parts of this might be might be touched by either events that have already happened or related to risks of things that are still to come and how might that need to change what this process actually looks like. And I think your point also about people's time is a really interesting one because there is like this push and pull that there's going to be both of those things happening, people who have a lot more time and people who have a lot less time. And I think that's another consideration is like, you might not really be able to to cover what you would normally cover in a 30 minute interview. You might just need to make more time for the actual conversations themselves. Like for example, I did an interview last week uh, with someone whose whole family had been sick with COVID for the last month. And we started the interview. She shared that information and like we just needed to give that space until she felt kind of ready to close that off. And it was probably five or six minutes of the interview that were just sort of me listening to her talk about what had been happening for her. And like, it's just necessary to do that in order to be able to talk about the things you want to talk about. You need to give space to those things too. Yeah. And so I think it's just, there's like a lot of ways that that's going to interplay with the actual process of collecting information right now. Yeah. And Marie, I'm curious what your recommendations are. You know, you just talked about something that, you know, is I'm sure like common for a number of researchers, like in interacting with individuals who are going through, you know, trauma related to coronavirus, whether it's like family, friends or um, just the situation overall. So I'm, I'm curious, like how you how you conduct yourself in that, you know, in that environment, if someone starts to, you know, maybe cross a line or, um, you know, something gets really personal in a way that maybe you're not used to. I'm, yeah, I'm curious how you, you know, kind of think about interviewing people in this definitely more like trauma prone environment. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, I think one factor 
that can kind of help like set the stage for being able to do that well in an interview is really just like naming the elephant in the room and your consent process, even if you're not interviewing specifically about a topic that is like obviously related to COVID, but just acknowledging the context and acknowledging what's happening for people right now and that, you know, things might come up that might be distressing for people and making people aware and reminding them that they can pause the interview at any time. They can stop the interview at any time. They can redirect. They don't have to answer any questions they're not comfortable with. Of just sort of giving that menu of options to them proactively so that it's sort of in people's mind uh, before they get into a, a space where they're in the conversation and realize like, oh, I really don't want to talk about this and I don't know how to handle it because, you know, social desirability bias creeps in or, you know, whatever reason. So I think there's an element of like setting the stage for acknowledging what's happening for people um, and creating an, an interview environment where that's there's space for that to be shared and communicated and then I'd recommend, um, I mean, I was kind of just looking for resources and like where are there existing guidelines on, because I realized these are just things that I was like remembering from my time doing interviews um, with really sensitive topics in my previous work. I think just like literally Googling guidance on like trauma sensitive or trauma informed interviewing skills. And there's a range of different resources, but they usually include some sort of list of like symptoms or signals of distress, like, you know, somebody beginning to speak really, really quickly or taking a very long time to respond, or there's all these sort of warning signs. It's easier to look for if you're doing, if you're able to actually see the person and then just guidance on how to respond, like just offering to take a break and go grab a glass of water or reminding them, you know, that you can call back at a different time or that you can choose to discontinue the interview altogether. But just like taking a second to look at some guidance because, you know, these are really difficult, difficult skill sets. And it, like, I'm very uncomfortable just like going with my intuition when I think somebody is uncomfortable or distressed. So there are a lot of resources out there from other fields as well as from this kind of work that are really relevant to to just like brushing up on before, before going into to speaking with someone right now. Yeah, no, I so appreciate that. I, you know, if ever there was a time for us to, to be compassionate as researchers and really be aware of our participants and, you know, really think about the situation from their, their point of view. Like I loved how you talked about kind of giving them a menu of options at the beginning of the interview. And then, you know, just being really aware of how they respond and checking in with them. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So yeah, I really, really appreciate that. I also, Marie, I would love to hear from you on how you take care of yourself as a researcher and just as a person when you're doing this kind of work, you know, when you're in, you know, a crisis situation yourself. I'm so happy to hear this question because it is so important and needs to be like, should I think always be a factor of um, conversations about how to support researchers because of the dynamic nature of the work, but like, especially so right now. I mean, I think the first thing is just really acknowledging that vicarious trauma is a real thing. And like hearing about difficult experiences, it can impact us psychologically too. I think looking at like the nature of UX research and the type of people that would be drawn to that kind of work like are probably fairly empathetic. Um, a lot of it is about trying to understand what's really happening for people and, and bring that front and center into some kind of decision-making outcome, um, which is like a very empathetic 
drive. So just like acknowledging and understanding the type of impact that this could have on you and that that's a real thing. Uh, it's a very normal thing and that there there's a lot of like research and resources about what that looks like for people. So yeah, like problems, problems might affect you that didn't affect you before that wouldn't have affected you outside of this because this is also way more personal for us. So something that someone's sharing with you might really relate to a personal experience that you're having right now in a way that you're not used to coming up in an interview or coming up in your research and just being aware that that might happen too. I think just really looking at the resources that are available to you in your own company and from your peers, other researchers on the team, and whether there's a way that you can be supportive of each other as things come up and sort of brainstorming how to deal with them and respond to them in real time. And then also just figuring out like what you need to sort of set boundaries uh, in that space for yourself personally and going about doing that in a really intentional way. I think like preparedness is the best response is a very common maxim in like disaster cycle management. And I think this is a case where that really applies. It's just like being aware that that risk is there and then figuring out what you're going to need to support yourself and your colleagues and what resources are available to do that before you're you're sort of in a situation where you realize you're burning out or you've, you've kind of taken on a bit too much in terms of how this is affecting you personally. Well, Marie, I am just so grateful that you have taken the time um, to have this conversation. And, you know, I think it's just so important for us as researchers to keep these things in mind right now. And thank you so much. Yeah, thanks so much for having me. I was super excited to come on and have this conversation. Thanks for listening today. If you want to continue the conversation, join us in the Slack group. If you aren't already a member, you can request an invite under the community tab on our website, mixed-methods.org. Follow us on Medium and Twitter to stay up to date with the latest UX research trends. Special thanks to Denny Fuller, our audio engineer and composer, Aaron Schroeder, who edited this episode, and Laura Levitt, our designer. See you next time.